Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ is risen. Truly he is risen. Every day is a feast of faith. Especially since we remember certain saints on each day. And their faith is a criterion for all of us. But today is not merely a feast of faith. Today is something else. It goes a step beyond that. Because today is the great feast of faithfulness. Today we gather to celebrate a very small group of people whose faithfulness was of rather different kinds. And yet it was all faithfulness. The myrrh-bearing women are the women who have taken care of the details. As we know from the beginning of the ministry in Galilee, they were women who had seen and who had heard the Lord. They are not intellectuals. They are not taking time off from their postdoc program. They are people. And their faith is not an intellectual faith at all. It's something far better. What is their faith like? Do you remember when Luke and Clopas are going to Emmaus after the crucifixion of the Savior? They are pounding with depression. They are in despair. The stranger who falls into them says, Where are you going and why are you sad? They are filled with sadness. They are grieving. And they explain why they are grieving. And then you know the rest of the story because we just read it. Well, they give us a clue to the faith of the murdering women when they say, Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? That is the kind of faith that the murdering women have. At some point in their lives, one day, they see the Savior. They hear Him speak, and their hearts burn within them. They can't argue with this burning heart. They can't talk it away, wish it away. They can't do anything with it except to acknowledge it, and in acknowledging the faith burning in their hearts, they fall into service of the Lord. And what we are celebrating now, of course, is the fact that they stay with him. They stand by him through the horror of this uh, grisly, bloody uh, judicial execution on the cross that the Romans had evidently picked up from the Phoenicians in North Africa. It's an absolutely hideous way to put another person to death. And they stand by the cross. So we know something else about their faith. It is a burning faith, but it is a burning faith that expresses itself and manifests itself as sheer raw courage in the face of anything and everything and all comers.
Their faithfulness is of that kind. We also celebrate today two other figures. They are not as widely covered in the New Testament as the myrrh-bearing women. They are, even though we know that they don't show up at the last minute because obviously they have a previous history with the Savior, but the Gospel chooses to acknowledge their presence only at the end. And in a very laconic, a very brief, almost terse way, there is, first of all, St. Joseph of Arimathea. And St. Joseph, we know, is a man of some wealth. When we hear in the Gospel that he goes into the Roman governor and boldly asks for the body of the Savior, we know what kind of boldness it is. A man of affairs, a man who commands some wealth, a man who is used to being heard, a man who does not hesitate. So St. Joseph of Arimathea comes and he takes the body of the Lord, he wraps it in pure linen, and he places it in a tomb that he has had for himself. So that is his faith. We don't know a lot about his background, about him. Or rather, we know him as the Gospel chooses to let us know people. We see them in action. The action can be extensive, and we can see them again and again in the Gospel, or it can be just a brief moment. It can be a matter that is completely concise because we know the whole man, we know everything we need to know about him, just in this small appearance. Small, but incredible and amazing. What is his faith like? We don't know much about him. So, what can we say about his faith? We can say a lot. The faith drives him to go to the Roman governor at a time of terrible tension between the downtrodden Jews and the occupying Romans. The Romans who are there to keep sedition out of the picture and who must see persons like the Savior as seditious. We see how Pilate, who for a certain period of time stands up to the, to the mob and wants to save Christ from death, we see him crumple when they start bringing Caesar into the picture and raise the ugly suggestion of disloyalty. At that point he washes his hands of the whole affair and the process moves forward. So Joseph of Arimathea has the kind of tough faith that has boldness about it and does not mind taking some risks that are rather serious, especially for a man who is prominent, a man of affairs. And that's his faith. Well, then there is Nicodemus, the Honorable Counselor, the man 
who came by night to visit the Savior and to talk things over with him. We understand that as a member of the Sanhedrin, he is certainly an intellectual. He hears this rabbi with a somewhat open mind. And at a meeting of the Sanhedrin, we understand that he stands up for an orderly hearing of this rabbi. The Sanhedrin wants only to not offend the the Romans into yet another violent military action against the people, the Jewish people. So it is moving, operating in a gray area between the Romans and their own Jewish folk. They have seen messiahs come and go before. And as we know historically, they will see many more messiahs before the Roman general Titus in the year 70 will come and wipe Jerusalem off the face of the earth and exile the Jews. So this is not new. And they are handling it as a routine piece of business, a very important, highly sensitive routine piece of business. And they want to just get rid of Jesus of Nazareth. And Nicodemus says, does our law condemn a man before it hears him? So we understand that he is an intellectual, he is a scholarly man, but he also has what most academics of my experience as an undergraduate and graduate student, what most of our academics lack. He had some guts. He raises what he knows very well is going to be an unwelcome question when everybody's trying to get a bandwagon going here, rah, rah, let's kill him, let's kill him, let's get rid of him. It is expedient that one man should die for the people, etc. So, He has kept an open mind. He has come to Christ. The Christ who tells him you have to be born again, he says, what, I'm an old man, I'm going to crawl inside my mother's womb and be born again? What are you talking about? But uh, here he is. Here he is. And we understand something else about him and about the other one, Joseph. They are capable of love. Honest love. Love with no strings attached. Love that is sufficiently powerful to enable them, to empower them, to forget themselves and their own private interests and act in behalf of truth, which is what authentic love always does. Just as authentic truth always acts in behalf of love. We speak the truth with love. Truth without love ceases to be truth. Love without truth ceases to be love. They both become something different. In fact, something rather hideous. But here we see, acting in the lives of these men and of these women, great acts not merely of faith, but of faithfulness. That is to say, faith enacted, faith manifest. Faith that is put out there in the public square to be spat upon, to be ridiculed, to be hated. It doesn't matter. Faithfulness. Courage. 
bravery. Things we usually ascribe to the Marine Corps. But in fact, it's true of these murdering women. These women who have followed their burning hearts. And of these two men. We honor them today because they raise large questions about the character of our own faith, of our own apprehension of love and truth. And like all good saints, and all saints are good saints, they raise the ultimate questions. However awkward that might be for you and me, yet they raise them. May the Lord God grant that by their intercessions our hearts will burn and our minds will grasp the truth in love. Amen.